Well, it wasn't very many months ago, we saw some tornado damage in this community that just completely ravaged several people's lives, their homes, and things were destroyed. So one thing that's interesting whenever that kind of thing takes place is to see the, everything that's above ground gets completely wrecked, but things that are below ground often stay in place. I remember several years ago when my parents' home was destroyed by a tornado as well, and now they stood another house right on top of that old foundation that used to be there, and were able to build back again. And you get to see the, the validity and the importance of having a deep and solid foundation. And the Bible speaks into this so many times in terms of our lives being built on a solid rock. Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone, it's from him that everything orients from there in terms of a, if you're going to build a foundation that's solid, it's also got to be square. Otherwise, things get all twisted up by the time you get up high. Jesus Christ is our chief cornerstone. The apostles and the prophets make a foundation which can be built upon and then we as the church continues through the last 2,000 years build upon a sure foundation that was laid before us. And it's pretty exciting to see how when you go to the Bible you can also see trees having deep roots that run way down into the soil in order that they can grow up big and strong. So we often look at well what's happening underneath is often a reflection of what can happen up, up high. And if there's no foundation, things topple quickly or they don't seem to last very long. So because of that, in these last few weeks, I've really felt the Lord leading for us to study a, a, a section of scripture and many sections really and talking about having a firm foundation in our life, pointing back to building our lives on the word. I feel like in our culture and especially dealing with those that are uh, younger generations that uh, there's such an intensive attack on the Bible itself, its authenticity, whether it's accurate, whether it's got conflicts and problems, whether it's relevant for today, can we even trust it? Is the authorship of it even valid? And so there's oftentimes so much negative speak about the Bible that the temptation is just to set it aside or it, the, often there's seeds of doubt being planted. And so that is why we are dialing into this particular study for the next uh, few weeks until we get settled into our firm foundation and things that I feel like God's got for us to learn. When we began this study, I, I shared with you the underlying theme of scripture. I realized the Bible is about God. It's about Jesus. It's about his redemption story. No question about all that. But there's a theme that runs in the undercurrent of the whole thing and it's regarding a king and his kingdom. We've seen that because of the fact that God is king. He is the creator of all things and he sits high upon his throne. And God in, in his kingship established all things the way that they are. But God also has an opposition. We saw in the first week um, that Lucifer, the created angel, the anointed cherub that covers, ultimately rebelled against God and a third of the angels went out with him, but he then, his name changed from Lucifer to be Satan, the devil, the dragon, that old serpent, as we see in Revelation chapter 12. And he opposes all that is God. Everything that God is doing and moving forward, he's always gonna have an opposition. But Satan made a proclamation, or Lucifer did, in his heart. He ultimately said, I'm gonna raise my throne, that's the key word, is I'm gonna raise my throne above God's throne, and I'm going to be like the Most High. And so everything that he is doing in opposition to God is to draw glory for himself and worship for himself and to lure people away from ever worshiping God at all. And so it's in our culture, this constant drip, and that's why we looked at last week how he functions and the way that he 
um, seduced Eve and Adam into eating fruit of the forbidden tree. And he did it in a very seductive fashion, in a manner in which if you just ultimately do this, you will be as smart as God because God's holding back on you. He's established something here that would allow you to be like him. If you'll just do this, you'll be like God. And so his manner was to question the authority of the Bible. He questioned God's truth and whether God was even holding out his goodness in some way. And so by planting these seeds of doubt, just keeps perpetually going at it, it ultimately moved Adam and Eve into a spot where they, they did not listen to God, they disobeyed, and now all of a sudden all this trouble comes. Well, what is common in our, in our culture today is to maybe look at the scripture and say, well, I'm not sure it's even valid, or how can we even trust, especially looking at the Old Testament is often disregarded as being simply an allegory or maybe a story that has spiritual meaning, but you can't take it at face value. Because after all, it would seem that science doesn't support the concept of Noah's flood, so therefore we have to throw Noah overboard, no pun intended. But anyway, we, uh, we disregard Noah, and so really anything pre-Genesis chapter 12 would be tossed aside as simply an allegory. And then often it's included the entire Old Testament being a sham because then if Genesis 1 through 11 is an allegory, then everyone who ever refers back to that their words would also be invalid as well. Well, the problem we come into with this is now you're gonna to have to deal with Jesus. And so let me share with you a few verses of scripture as we begin today. I, here's my goal for the day is I, I, I want to share with you an overview of the Old Testament. And in doing so, I want, you, I want you to see today that God has established road signs along the way for us to see his story. Just remember the word history is his story. And God's always telling his story and he does it multiple ways, multiple times. And so we need to see it because if we're going to choose to believe and stand on a firm foundation of the word, it's helpful to know the context. Anytime you're going to read something that God says, it's vital to be in the right context so we don't take his words out. I don't know about you, but I don't like it when people take my words out of context and and then turn around and use those things in a way that's not fair. We see this in the media every day and it frustrates all of us, I'm sure. But there's a, I wanna lay a, a little groundwork here in the beginning before we dive into some level of overview. In 2 Timothy chapter three and verse 16 teaches this, Paul told Timothy that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And it's profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped unto every good work or every good work. Now, when we look at this, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now, the words God speaks here is inspired. It doesn't mean the writer himself is the inspired one. The word of God is the inspired word. God breathed, that's what the word inspired means. If you say that the writer was inspired, then that would mean everything the writer ever has written would be inspired, and that would not be true. And so the word of God is inspired. And well, how did all this come about then? How did we even get into a book form eventually? Well, Peter describes this in 2 Peter. He said, you know what? I had this unique experience because I even got to go up on the Mount of Transfiguration and see Jesus transfigured in front of me and hear the audible voice of God. And here's what Peter then had to say. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture 
is of any private interpretation for prophecy never came by the will of man but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God is the one that moved them and gave them the words to now write. They were considered holy men. Holy meaning simply set apart. That doesn't mean they were sinless. We all know better. And what is typical for the assault on the authenticity of the Bible is to assault the writers and say, well, they were sinful just like the rest of us. Yes. Can God, the question you always be confronted with is, can God use sinful people to accomplish his purpose? Yep. Has all the way throughout scripture, all the way throughout history, God has been able to accomplish his purposes with sinful people just like you and me. But these men were set apart in order to be able to write these things or dictate these things that it would be put down. Now here's why I'm wanting you to see this. We've seen a couple of accounts of the word scripture. It comes by inspiration. It comes by God. God breathed. Now Jesus has a confrontation with the religious leaders in his day who cling to the words, the scriptures. But you have to ask a question is what are they clinging to literally? Because we say, well, the scriptures are only, they're only accurate in their original form. That it's only on the tablets that Moses uh, was able to collect or it was only on the scrolls that were originally written the the original writings we can trust but anything that would be considered a copy might have been polluted along the way therefore well you can't really trust it because sinful people get in the way and they uh, they change the words around and make it the way they want it to be so you have to ask the question when Jesus is now speaking to the religious leaders who have what they would know to be scripture do they actually have in their hand the original documents from Moses? Do they have the originals from Elijah or, or excuse me, from Jeremiah, from Isaiah or anyone else? Do they have the originals? And the answer, of course, is no. But what does Jesus say about it? In John 5, 39, you search the scriptures. What was he even referring to? He's referring to the copies that the scribes have kept all of these generations year by year making a copy of the word of God so it can be handed off. It was the, the text that Jesus would even see as authoritative and accurate and one to be lived by. Now watch what he said. For, search the scriptures. For in them you think you have eternal life and they are they which testify of me. Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. See, these guys flat knew their they knew the text of Moses. That's why Jesus called it to the witness stand. Bring Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five books, the books of Moses. He brings that to the witness stand. So are we assuming then that they have the original document? No, they have copies, but Jesus says, go search those and you'll find those things are about me. And he even told him, if you don't believe his writings, you're not gonna believe my words either. But I love this in the book of Luke, another example. Jesus, after he had risen from the grave, meets with the disciples and begins to explain some things to them they can now understand. And then he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. Jesus just summarized what we know to be our entire Old Testament and he's wanting them to understand it. And in this summary, he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. 
And he said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. So he goes back and quotes something, even to validate again. And what's the point? Because we learn that all scripture is given by inspiration of God, and God is more than capable of preserving his word, even through sinful people throughout all generations. Just 2,000 years ago, when God himself was on this planet, and he told the religious leaders, search the scripture. What were they searching? The copies that had been handed down, the ones that had been preserved, and what has been kept. And since then, it has been the same. The word of God has been kept in the the writings of, of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and obviously Paul in the New Testament and so many others. And so these have been kept in store. And so here's the dilemma you're gonna face. If the Old Testament of your Bible is not valid and it's all messed up, then you have to draw one conclusion. Jesus is a liar. That's the only logical conclusion you could come to. Well, no one wants to necessarily throw Jesus overboard in the process of this conversation, but we want to attack the Bible. Well, why do we want to do that? Because if we just keep throwing the Bible out, then ultimately I have no authority in my life. I have no real roadmap to follow, and I can kind of navigate my own way. And ultimately, I can be like God and basically seat on my own throne because now I run my own show. That becomes the danger in not having a firm foundation. So with that backdrop in mind, I'm going to take a few minutes here to walk you through the story of the Old Testament. Um, Maybe you've heard this many times, but I'm going to just tell you in my personal walk with God, uh, having grown up in church, I knew so many little stories along the way and verses and character qualities of individual people and had no concept that this was one learning story that just kept going. And so a couple of weeks ago, I shared with you the the king and his kingdom. And then there's an undercurrent always there about a king on the throne. That's true. But then there's this real-time story that's also happening with people, this interaction with people. And and that's what we're going to talk about now. So we're going to view it through road signs because there's constantly shifts in the road. There's something to be paying attention to. And so here's the first road sign. It's the road sign of the Genesis, the beginning. In the Genesis time frame, You have the beginning of everything. It's the beginning of creation. It's the beginning of mankind. It also was the beginning of sin. God was also in the beginning, had a a prophetic statement made that that he was going to pronounce a judgment upon the devil himself, that I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman. And from the seed of a woman will come one who will crush your head. And so a war was declared. And this took place in Genesis. God called out a man, his name was Abraham, and God used one man, Abraham, to ultimately become nations. Remember, the promises were then made to a man named Abraham, children named Abraham, Isaac, then Jacob. And Jacob then ultimately has 12 sons and makes up the nation of Israel, whom we understand throughout the rest of our Old Testament was God's instrument to ultimately usher in the Messiah, Jesus Christ the Lord. And so the time frame of the Genesis ends with Israel, the nation, now going down to Egypt. Because of the famine that was in the land, they needed food, and for for survival's sake, they ended up in the place of Egypt. That closes off that time frame. The next road sign time frame where things shift is in the Exodus. The Exodus is when Israel will now leave Egypt and go to the place that Abraham and Isaac promised. And in the Exodus, this is the place where they're going to 
leave Egypt supernaturally by the blood of the lamb. Remember, this is the plagues. This is the spot where ultimately the blood of the lamb that was placed on the side of the door and over the top of the door became the escort to get them out. And so it was the blood of the lamb that was what ultimately led Israel out. But they often had supernatural things that happened and God provided for them and they walked through the Red Sea on dry ground and God supernaturally provided water from rocks and food from heaven and God supplied because God was leading this nation to the place of promise. So the time slot of the Exodus is very unique because it covers the books in your Bible, these history books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And in this entire time frame is a nation of people in a, in a mo- movement forward towards the promised land. We know that in that time frame, Israel had some times of belief, times of unbelief. It was a catastrophic time for one whole generation who rebelled against God and didn't believe God could take them to that land. And they rebelled against him and they died in the wilderness. But God saw fit. He would keep his promise. And I'm going to take you. You're not going to go, but I'm going to take your kids. And God ended up ultimately leading the children then to possess this promised land. So the time frame of the Exodus, Israel from Egypt now leaves and they're heading to the promise. The next road sign becomes the conquest. The conquest is the book of Joshua. It's an incredible book of battle after battle after battle because the Joshua book is the Jesus book. Joshua's name means Jehovah is salvation. It's the Jesus book because Jesus' name means Jehovah is salvation. And so what you observe in that book is Israel now conquering and winning battle sequence after another to ultimately possess the promise. And so in this, one thing after the other after the other, sadly, they did not completely obey God in this time frame. They conquered the land, but they didn't possess it all. They left some remnants of people behind that ultimately would be destructive to them as a nation. And so once the conquest was finished, Joshua passed off the scene. And now it's time for a new regime of leadership in a manner in how Israel would be led. A new road sign. It's the time of the judges. In the time of the judges, this is when there would be a judge in the land. And a judge would be a a political leader and a military leader. But they're not a king. But in the time of the Judges, this would include the book of Judges and Ruth. And in the time of Judges, this is where Israel was going up and down like a roller coaster. God's leading them. They've already been to this promised land. They've conquered it. They're possessing it, sort of. Sin is creeping in because of some undone business along the way. And now what happens is they they rebel against God. And then they turn from the rebellion and go, God, we're so sorry. And And God forgives, God moves forward, God raises them a new judge to lead them for a season. And then they get on this cycle and they do this again and again and again. So that covers the books of Judges and also Ruth. But then you have a new road sign. It's the time of the kings. In the book of 1 Samuel in chapter 8, Israel rejects officially God as their king. They no longer wanted a theocracy, they wanted a monarchy. We want a king who will ride out to battle before us so we can be like the other nations. And God knew their request of their heart and their desire, though he warned them against it, gave them the king. The first king, King Saul, reigned for 40 years. He was started out as an okay king, but then he went bad. 
followed by David, who was a man after God's own heart. None of these men were perfect by any stretch, but David was a man who loved God. But during the time of the kings, David also had a son whose name was Solomon. And Solomon rose to greatness. Solomon got to build the temple for God. This was the, pl- the, whole, the whole story is coming to the pinnacle. It's so cool because God led the nation to the land of promise so that they could possess it. And God said something special. He said, this is the place and I'm going to choose to cause my name to dwell there. And what did that mean? God had a special plan installed here where they would ultimately establish a city and a temple. And in this would be a temple would be built and the glory of God would be revealed from this temple. From this place, the city now we know as Jerusalem, the glory of God would be revealed from here that all the nations of the world would know that God is God. And God had called out this unique group of people, Israel, that they would live according to his words and walk their life according to his book that he had given to them through Moses. And the plan was is that the the manner of their life would so illustrate and so let everyone in the world know that the God of heaven is the true and living God so that all men would know this and and come to know and, and know God. That's what God wanted. Well, during this time of the kings, after King Solomon, his son rebelled. Solomon kind of led the charge in rebellion. We, many of us know that story. But there would begin a slippery slope of sin and carnality and idolatry started to sneak into the nation on a lot of levels. Ultimately, the nation of Israel divided during the time of the kings. Those 12 tribes were no longer united with one purpose, one vision, one heart, one mind. No more. There was 10 tribes went north. Two tribes stayed in the south. Judah and Benjamin basically possessed that city of Jerusalem. That was their deal and everybody else was in the northern part. As you read through your Bible during this section, it's in the section of the kings that a lot of the prophets are speaking into them. And and so you're reading in Isaiah and Jeremiah and ultimately Ezekiel and many of the other minor prophets are speaking into this time frame, speaking to Israel, letting them know that, guys, you're going down a road of idolatry. Turn from your sin and turn back to God or God's going to bring his judgment. He has to. And Israel would not listen. And then ultimately the same was said of Judah, who was Judah and Benjamin, the two southern tribes, as the prophets would speak into Judah and say the same and turn from where you're going here, otherwise God will, for, his, for the truth of his word's sake, he will overthrow. But they would not listen. Ultimately, God brought in the Assyrians to conquer the northern tribes. And then later, the Babylonian Empire conquered the south. And then the north. Which brings us to our next road sign. It was the time of the exile. In the exile, this is where God had pronounced this judgment that these nations outside are going to come and conquer you and take you away for 70 years. Israel was held captive then. They were delivered from Jerusalem to Babylon, which is located about 50 miles south of Baghdad, Iraq. Kind of starts putting all this in a context that looks a little different in light of our history of even today. But they were taken for 70 years captive into Iraq. And it was a time of judgment from the Lord that they would not be in their homeland. They would not have the temple. It was destroyed. The walls of the city were crushed. The gates were burned. 
But this is that famous verse many of us remember from the book of Jeremiah in chapter 29 where God says, you know what? I know the, promise, uh, the plans that I have for you, the plans for you to prosper. And God had these promises and he speaks into these things. Why? Because God had already told them this time of exile will last for 70 years and then I will give you permission to go back and rebuild. And the time of the exile had been complete. The book of Daniel fits that perfectly because he was an exile prophet who lived away from Jerusalem and saw the whole city fall and watch what happened. He got taken captive. He was one of the guys taken to Babylon and went through all these different regimes. During this time, the Babylonian empire got crushed by the Medo-Persian empire until finally the time of the exile was finished. The 70 years had been completed and now a decree is written from Cyrus, the king of Persia, giving permission. Any Jew that would love to go back and rebuild, they can go back. And they had free right to go. Matter of fact, the government even backed it and financially supported it. And they were to go back and rebuild the temple first, which is the book of Ezra. It was the reconstruction of the temple, the reconstruction of temple worship, so that all things were put back in the order that they needed to be for Israel to worship God in that space once again. And then another wave was given opportunity. Under Artaxerxes, the king, he gave another um, proclamation as well in the book of Nehemiah then that anyone that wants to go back and then rebuild the walls of the city and reestablish Israel's sovereignty is more than welcome to go back. It's, you're free to go. And so you see this ultimate return being the last uh, road sign along the way in the history, his story of the Old Testament of watching God's complete story take place of Israel ultimately going to this land of promise, being deported from it, and then going back into it again. And that then concludes the history of the Old Testament. Why does any of that make any difference that you would even know that? It helps as a Bible student when you're reading your Bible to understand what's going on, what's happening. There is a story that is always happening in your Bible. And it's helpful to know what's going on because it helps you make things, helps things to make sense. It also allows you then to understand how you could maybe learn some things and we could derive uh, applications from these texts. But as much as there's a bigger overarching umbrella of storyline of God, well, every time you look, there's another smaller story that's happening in the story. Even this, even this, and I believe that God oversaw the order of the books and putting them the way that he did so that even, even in the preservation and the order, God keeps just telling his story. Now let's go backwards for a second. In the, book of, in the time of the Genesis or in the book of Genesis, you just watch this story happen inside of the story. Genesis, the book of beginnings, the beginning of everything, beginning of man, the beginning of sin. Man ends up in slavery at the end. Or at the end, he's in Egypt and now entrapped in slavery. God calls man out of slavery or Israel out of slavery uniquely by the blood of the lamb. You know what? You and I have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, we were taken out of slavery and given full liberty to walk in the promises of God and pursue the promises of God through the blood of the Lamb. That's how we were set free. 
Israel experienced a, a kind of a national baptism by going through the Red Sea on dry ground. And then we're supernaturally fed in the same way that God does with us. We walk with God one step at a time in obedience. In the book of Exodus, God gives them the law, the order of life, and shows them, walk your life according to my words, one step at a time in faith and obedience, and just follow me. And he gave them a cloud and a pillar of fire that they might be able to follow. But then you see in the book of Leviticus where the word Leviticus simply means to join to. And we learn in an application that God has, has designed for our Christian lives that we join to him in intimate worship through sacrifice. Remember Leviticus is that tough Bible book to read where every year you say, I'm going to read my Bible through this year. And you get to Leviticus and it's like one sacrifice and you're like, woof. I don't know if I keep doing this. And the next day, another sacrifice. You're like, hang that. I'm going to do something else. And so you move on and you just, you wear out. Why? But here's the thing. If we understand Leviticus means to join to. Well, what do we learn? What's the application? Why even bother reading such a book? Because Israel joined to the intimacy with God, the priest did, through sacrifice. Well, we are taught in our New Testament that we Paul said this, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And so we learn that, you know what? Our intimacy with the Lord takes place through sacrifice. The living sacrifice where we yield ourselves unto God, walking with him day by day by faith in his, in his truth when we stand on his firm foundation. But then you get to the book of Numbers. It's a great picture of the Christian life. They numbered the people at the beginning of the book. They numbered them at the end of the book. And you know what you find out? They didn't grow. There was no growth in the nation for an entire chunk of time. Why? Because it's in the middle of that book that Israel rebelled against God in unbelief. And because of unbelief, they would not grow. What a great application to our lives. That when we set aside the word of God, we choose to walk in unbelief. There's no growth. But God's not done. God is always the merciful God. The law had been broke many times. And so what does God do? In the book of Deuteronomy, we get the second law. The law of love. The word love is mentioned over and over again. And God presents it in a manner of obey me because you love me, not because you have to. And he calls Israel into this intimate relationship of love because you want to. You don't have to. Obey me because you love me, not because you have to. And it's a spiritual growth in any of our lives where we come to that spot where it's not just the duty and checking boxes, but out of an intimacy with God, we obey and walk with God because we love God. But ultimately, it leads to that place of promise where God takes us to that space where he wants to just dwell with you. And that you would possess the promises that he's been making to you all along. He wants you to own those things. That, that promise of peace in the midst of turmoil. And those moments of all the life of joy that you can have. The deep-seated joy that's unspeakable and full of glory. And you discover those things in the book of Joshua. The Jesus book where Jesus ultimately conquers all. And you possess the promises of God. It's the uniqueness, guys, of our Bible. We could do this all day long of watching God telling the big picture of his story. And then underneath the big picture is another story that he's teaching about you and about me and the relationship he desires to have because God 
desires to know, he knows you, but he wants to be known by you. Our God is a knowable God. He wants you to know his ways, his works, his mind, and his plans. He wants you to know him in this way and experience him in a manner that you can look to the scripture aforetime. We can go back even now, all these years. That's why Romans 15 teaches us this, that the things that were written aforetime are for our learning. That we, through patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. I can read what took place with an entire nation of people and realize, watch how God interacted with them. Watch God interacting with me. I grow in my confidence with God as, a, as who he is. I watch his mercy. I watch his patience. I watch his justice. I watch his love. I watch his provision. I watch his steadfastness and the way that he works with people throughout all of history. So that it brings this patience and comfort of the scriptures. And therefore then I stand firm in hope. And just as there's a story and another story inside of every chapter and every verse in your Old Testament is another story. God just keeps illustrating again and again and again his redemptive plan for you and I. An easy one to see, and we'll finish fast. Genesis chapter 22, I want you to see this really quick before we're done. Here's a story inside the story that's inside the story. You take Abraham, who has been promised a child. He's 100 years old. When he finally has his, he now has a son. His wife is pushing 100 with him, and it's an impossible birth. They celebrate that. They obviously trusted God for something supernatural to happen. And now all of a sudden we get to this spot where God tells him to go sacrifice this son, which makes no sense whatsoever. How in the world could Abraham be the father of many nations if he is going to slaughter his own son? And the only way that's possible is if God resurrects his son, which is what ultimately Abraham believed, that God would resurrect his son. If, I have, if God's asking me to kill him, God's also going to resurrect him. In Genesis chapter 22, verse 1, it says, It came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. And he said, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning. He saddled his donkey. He took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Now notice, he's going somewhere up on top of a mountain to offer his beloved son as a sacrifice, and they take the wood with them. This story should start already having some connecting points. If it's new to you, this sounds real familiar. This sounds a lot like Jesus. Of course, it's on the third day. Then on the third day, verse 4, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw that place afar off. You know what's always true in the Bible? On the third day is something miraculous. Somebody goes from death to life on the third day. And it's going to happen right here in Isaac's life. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder. And we're going to worship. And we will come back to you. We learn about worship here. The first time the word worship appears in the Bible is right here. What is worship? Is it singing songs? It can be. Is it giving offering? Certainly could be. 
Is it talking to my neighbor about Jesus? Absolutely. Is it being a loyal, faithful employee? Absolutely. All of those things are worship. But what is worship? He's defining it. It is taking the best that you have and offering it unto the Lord. And that's why we are called out to make a sacrifice of ourselves every single day. Take all that we have and give it unto the Lord for him. So Abraham in verse 6 said, So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife and the two of them went together. And, but Isaac spoke to Abraham his father and said my father and he said well here I am son and he said well look the fire and the wood but where's the lamb for the offering and Abraham said my son God will provide himself the lamb for the burnt offering so the two of them went together then they came to the place of which God had told him and Abraham built an altar there in the place the wood in order and he bound his son Isaac his son laid him in the altar of wood And Abraham stretched out his hand, took the knife to slay his son. You know the scene. He's about to thrust it in his chest. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son Isaac, from me. And Abraham lifted his eyes and looked. And there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns so Abraham went and took the ram and offered it upon the burnt offering instead of his son and this next verse is important and Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide or Jehovah Jireh this whole verse this section is packed full you have a big story of God doing something supernatural through a nation there's another story where God is showing and revealing his redemptive plan even in the order of the books but then inside of a book and inside of a chapter God tells his story again and he will do this again and again and again because you have a father who loves his son dearly who takes him up on top of a mountain puts him on a piece of wood even takes the knife so that he could slay his son and offer him for an offering unto God but God instead makes a provision In the same way that God made a provision for you and for me, God substituted Isaac with a ram who this male lamb is now caught in the thicket. His horns are now caught by thorns. This male lamb is wearing a crown of thorns. And God substituted Isaac for this ram. And God tells this story of his redemptive plan for you and for me again and again and again. And this is why Jesus told those Pharisees and those religious leaders, go search the scripture and you will find, they're written of me. In them you will find you have eternal life because they're all about me. Page after page after page. And all of a sudden when we see the Bible in this context of God telling his story and his redemptive plan through a nation and now through even an individual, and we can watch this happen, it brings application and it certainly brings validity to the word of God. But it also brings relevance. That my life can be built on the firm foundation of the word of God and is 100% relevant today just as much as it was at this time. And something that unique took place with Abraham is he's now interacted with God in a new way that he never has before. And he calls upon him in a new name. 
he now calls him Jehovah Jireh. My God will provide because he has just witnessed God's supernatural provision. Guys, this is exactly what God does with our lives. God has a plan for you. God is telling his story. He's writing his story with you. God's ordered these things and God is a knowable God. Where through day-to-day interactions and things with the Lord, we often learn to call upon him by a new name. My Lord will provide. My Lord will guide. My Lord will save. I know him these ways. And there's a lesson inside of the lesson inside of the lesson that all of a sudden, folks, you could take your Bible home and begin reading from Genesis straight through and all of a sudden you see it from a big picture all the way down to the tiny picture. But the beauty is we can also view the Bible in the context in which it was written and for the purpose it was written to whom it was written. And we'll dial in more on those things in the future. But today, here's how I want to conclude with you as we consider the word of God in the firm foundation. In fact, if you would just be still and close your eyes and just bow your head in an attitude of prayer. I realize today that I really gave you a pretty lengthy history lesson. And so the question is, well, what do I do with that? My prayer for this day is that you would be so enamored by the word of God, just blown away by not the words that I speak, but instead by the Bible itself, to be just so captivated by the fact that God's story is so clear and it does all fit together and I fit into his story. And that you would see that God's desire for you to have a relationship with you has been since the foundation of the world. He's had a redemptive plan and order and he wants you to know him. He wants to walk with you in an intimate relationship day by day and has been willing to give his very best, the ultimate sacrifice, his son Jesus Christ, that that would be reality. And he tells that story over and over and over and over that we would see it, understand it and receive it. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. What a great song. This morning as we all come in here, I recognize that today we all come in here with different uh, stresses and issues of life. Some of us come in here today, this is like cloud nine day. This has been the most exciting week of your whole life. For others, this has been the most challenging week of your life. For some, this has been a time of sorrow. For some, just Man, it's just been a normal old week and just get up and every day and go do your thing, whatever that is. And so as we come into the, to the, the gather this morning like this to worship together, you know, we come and open up the Bible every week and we want to be able to impart the word of God and to be able to learn together what does God's word actually say so that we might be able to stand on a firm foundation that is secure in Christ Jesus the Lord. We want to be able to stand firm in his words because we realize that Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so God is always wanting to strengthen our faith and bolster our faith. And so it's critical that we come to the place where we just believe the Bible. What does it say? We've also looked at the fact that over the last couple of weeks that the Bible is always under attack. It's attack in our culture, but this is nothing new. 
Ever since the beginning, in the beginning of the book of Genesis, the word of God was under attack where Satan was questioning the word of God, questioning God's character even, and then kind of causing then for Eve and Adam both to question God's goodness, question God's authority, and ultimately question just his words. And it led the pathway of sin that we all now struggle through all the time in our world and the turmoil and the tribulation that it is is the result of sin entering into the world because of a rejection of God's words. And so as we've been approaching this each week is trying to get our foundation settled. And so I've tried to paint some big pictures of understanding on some things. And I want to do that again today because last time we were together, I, I gave you an overview of the Old Testament just so that we can understand how the pieces and parts fit together. It's kind of in a road sign fashion. And we're going to do that again today and carry it all the way through the New Testament, even through the book of Revelation to see not only what has been and those things which are, but those things which are to come. And the reason I think it's important for us to do this is we often get in and study just a book of the Bible, and we'll do that here again very soon, and I look forward to that. But sometimes in the middle of those studies, we kind of lose perspective of the whole picture. And as a result, we, we might, it might adjust our foundation to where we begin to wonder, you know, where, where is God in the middle of all this, and where do I fit in the equation with what all God is doing, not only in my life, but in the scope of the whole world? And so that is the reason why we're in this study. So we started a few weeks back learning the fact that the Bible has an under, undergirding theme, and that's called, it's the theme of the king and his kingdom. As we observe the Bible, there is a king. The Lord God is our king, and the king is the creator. And, of course, we got to see how that all played out, and I'm going to go through some more of that again today. But as the king who has an opposition in his kingdom, so you have a king and then a counterfeit king. And so the entire Bible is this story about a king who's on his throne and there's a counterfeit that is always opposing him. And so because of his great, the king's great love for humanity, he offers up himself to pay the sin debt for people so that we can spend eternity with the king. So the king is unfolding this big drama of redemption and that's what I've titled even this message for today is the unfolding drama of redemption. And it goes from the beginning to the end. So today, let's just start at the road signs. If you're a note taker, this is a great day to take some notes because I'm going to give you 24 road signs. You're like, oh my gosh, Dwayne with a 24-point message. We're going to be here till noon. Well, actually, no, we'll be here till 5 o'clock, and then we'll just roll into the party. So it'll be fun. So you're fine. Now, actually, in the course of a few minutes, we're just going to give you the overarching view of the Bible, including those things which uh, we believe are to come. So let's go backwards. Let's go back to where we were last week in Genesis the first road sign, the book of beginnings. It's the beginning of everything. It was the beginning of man, the beginning of creation. It was also the beginning of sin. It was the beginning of the time when God, uh, because of sin, there was a, uh, a judgment that was called out here upon Satan himself where it was told to him that from the seed of the woman will come one who will bruise your head. He will literally crush your head. You will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. And God pronounced a judgment that would then follow through the rest of the Bible until we get to the end. And so from that spot where that judgment has been cast, God also had a redemptive plan because man had fallen in sin and God had a plan. So you start to watch how God calls out a man. His name was Abraham and God begins to work through this man and promised Abraham not only a family but also some real estate. And he told him, he said, I'm going to take you and your family to a land of promise. And so Abraham became a man who was a man with a family, supernatural family, by the way. And God also then raised up ultimately a nation. 
So by the time you get to the end of the book of Genesis and the time frame of the Genesis, Israel, the nation, was in Egypt because of a famine in the land that drove them into that place. For several hundred years, for about 400 years, they were there. And then eventually they became slaves in that land and it was very oppressive and it was not the place they were to be. And they began to call out to God based on the promise that was made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the Genesis. Israel began to call out to God knowing that God has chosen them out for a specific purpose. They are the, they are the people group, the nation that will ultimately bring forth the man-child that's going to be the Savior. Though they may not have understood all of that, they knew this. God made a promise to them and they were going to follow through with the promise and trust God for the promise he made. And so that was the time then of the Exodus. And in the time of the Exodus is when God called them out of Egypt and he uniquely rescued them out ultimately by the blood of the lamb. People applied blood on the doorpost and over the front of their door, the Passover. So when God passed through and he, if he saw the blood, he passed over that home. But if he didn't see blood there, there was the death of the firstborn. Not only of, of people, but even of the livestock and the cattle and things of, that were a part of that home. And death passed. And so God rescued Israel out of Egypt by the blood of the Lamb. They were then sent out, pushed out. We know those are the great supernatural stories of Israel crossing the Red Sea on dry ground and God crushing the Egyptian army by collapsing the sea back on top of them. God supernaturally then taking Israel on a route ultimately to the promised land. That's what the Exodus was. Leave Egypt going to the promised land. And they get on this journey and we learn a lot of things about their journey because it was in this time where it was times of belief and times of unbelief. Actually due to unbelief, the older generation that got to see God take them through the Red Sea, that entire generation died in the wilderness of unbelief. Because all those ages 20 and up rejected the word of God that God could actually deliver them into the promised land the way that he said he would. And God said, you don't believe me so I'll take your kids in there instead. And so everyone ages 20 and under, God ended up taking that group of people into the promised land. And at the end of the time of the Exodus came the next time, and that would be the conquest. And this was the moment where Israel now crosses the Jordan River. They go into this promised land, and there's going to be one conquest after the other to conquer this land, possess it the way God said. And there's a reason why God was leading them here. God told him, he said, I'm going to lead you to a place and I'm going to cause my name to dwell there. Meaning there's a, is a specific place of geography that's from here that the glory of the Lord would be revealed from here and the nations of the world would know that truly there is a God in heaven and you people are called out by my name. Israel was called to live in a different manner and lifestyle. God taught them so much about agriculture and how to manage their land, how to interact with people, how to do, follow the law in a way that would be honoring to God, but honoring to mankind. And when Israel obeyed that, it revealed the greatness and glory of God. Of course, we know that that eventually begins to slip. And so in the course of the time of the conquest, Israel now possesses this land. They conquered this land. Joshua was their leader. But at the end of this conquest time, entered into a new road sign, a new time called the Judges. God is still the king, but Israel at this point is, is starting to falter in, in, in their path of following after God. It's kind of this up and down roller coaster where if you read the book of Judges, in fact, you'll find out where it says that, well, Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord again. And it goes through these repetitious cycles where there's this time of repentance and then this time of falling away. And time of repentance, time of falling away. And it was a repeated cycle. 
In this, in this time, a judge would be like a military leader and they would serve as long, almost like a governor would be. But they're not a king. But that was ultimately the heart of what Israel wanted. By the time they got to this point and kind of apostasy is starting to settle in, they really wanted a king to be like all the other nations around them. So we enter in then into the time of the kings where Israel rejected God as king and said, we want a king that can ride out to battle like all the other kings that we face and we want someone with a physical presence. And so God helped them and they, they chose Saul to be the king. And King Saul was, started out as a good king. He was a humble man and an honorable man, but he also rejected the word of God as king. He disobeyed God. And God rejected him as the king. And God raised up another king, David, who then served God. And it was a man after God's own heart. But even David, as we know, with his heart for God, still had struggle of sin because all of mankind does. And so there became this sequence of kings. And if you just watch the trajectory, eventually you get to Solomon, David's son, who builds the temple. And finally, the glory of God now revealed the place where God's name would dwell. The city of Jerusalem is set. The temple is set. And people come from literally all over the world to see the glory of God in this place. It was a phenomenal sight. But the heart of the nation was beginning to drift. They were starting to serve other gods. And matter of fact, Solomon not only built a temple for God, but he built temples to many gods, false gods for all the wives that he had. And so Israel began to go into apostasy and to begin to slide. There became a huge conflict during the time of the kings where they split as a nation, where they were 12 tribes, but now they split apart, where there were 10 tribes in the north called Israel, and two tribes maintained the south, including Jerusalem, the city, and they were known as Judah. And so the the nation basically divided. Because of the Assyrians at this point, the Assyrian army came in and conquered the northern tribes of Israel. And the south remained intact for a bit until ultimately the Babylonian Empire conquered them. God allowed them to be conquered, which means they transitioned then from the time of the kings to where there's no more king. They're out of business. Instead, it was the time of the exile. Israel, God had pronounced a judgment on Israel that they would go into exile and be removed from this city. And the city was decimated. The walls were broken down. The temple was destroyed. And the Babylonian Empire then stole away the children of Israel. Took them away from there. And took them to what's now known as Iraq. Matter of fact about 50 miles south of Baghdad is where they went. And so they got taken away to this place. And God had already told them this is going to take place for 70 years. You will be in exile. And then I will give you a, a right to go back. So at the end of this exile period... God then gave them Cyrus, the king of Persia. The Persian Empire ultimately conquered the Babylonian Empire. And Cyrus, the king of Persia, gave a proclamation saying, anyone of the Hebrew people that would like to go back, you're more than welcome to go back and rebuild. And so over the course of some rebuilding process through the return, ultimately the temple was rebuilt, and then the walls of the city were reconstructed, and the city of Jerusalem was, was put back. In order, And that's the history of your entire Old Testament. All the prophets that we read about, they all are plugged into mostly into the times of the kings, the times of exile, time of return. That's where they, most of them fit into those times. But that's the story of your entire Old Testament. And all of this is leading up, this unfolding drama of redemption, because the anticipation is the true king is coming. The Messiah is coming. The Christ is coming. 
And all these prophets and all these stories are foretelling what's coming. They're not just an allegory that it would be this spiritual story. No, they are real people, real places doing real things. And at the same time, God uses those stories of people to tell another story of something he's going to do. So you get to watch God interacting with people, but getting to watch these stories unfold that look like a savior. Oftentimes you'll see something that totally typifies Christ in the Old Testament through somebody. And you'll see an antichrist figure coming in an opposition to that. And you get to just watch this happen again and again. At the end of your Old Testament period, which we just described, this return has happened and now things are reestablished. And from a biblical perspective, we go into a 400-year silence where there's no open vision from the Lord for 400 years. It was during this time where the Greek Empire, the Alexander the Great, would have conquered the, the known nations at that point, And ultimately, he would have been overthrown by the Roman Empire. So by the time the New Testament comes along in the days of Christ, the Roman Empire is in full order, full power, and in control. And now we reach the New Testament. This new time where now a whole new story is going to be written. A new covenant with God will be constructed here. Because why? The true king is going to come. And so we, we get to see in the Gospels, the next big road sign is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John illustrating and giving to us clearly the birth, the life, the miracles, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ the Lord, the true king. But in it, we also get to see where the king was rejected. The king is here. And the pronouncing of the fact that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is here because the king is here. And yet the Jewish leaders at that time, many did not reject, or they rejected Jesus as the true king, the Messiah. They were anticipating a Messiah, but they were anticipating someone who would be like David, who was a great conqueror. He was a mighty warrior. And they were thinking it would be somebody like him because they knew he was even supposed to come from the house and the lineage of David. That made sense. But he wasn't the conqueror they were anticipating. Jesus came as a lamb to be slain, to pay the sin debt. But the struggle was at the time is, uh, among religious leaders is we are keepers of the law. We have we followed the law perfectly. Therefore, by keeping the sacrifices and all the rituals, we have made ourselves righteous through these things, and yet the righteousness of man and keeping of the law will never make one righteous. And so Jesus came to be the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So you get your gospels. But then we make a transition after the resurrection of Christ. There becomes the development of the church. It's the acts of the apostles, a very unique time in history where the church is in its beginning. The Holy Spirit now is revealed and supernatural things take place. And these apostles who are the foundation, Jesus described this. He is the chief cornerstone and the church is built upon the foundations of the apostles and the prophets. And so that what happens during this time is real critical. But the church begins to take shape. Supernatural things take place. Miracles are taking place. The word of God is being confirmed that Jesus Christ truly is the Messiah. And you can know that for sure. One of the great things that was taking place was the fact that the, the focus at the beginning of the Acts time was very Jewish in nature. The, the word was being proclaimed to the, the Hebrew people. And many were believing that Jesus is the Messiah. By the thousands, in fact. But there became a shift. There was a preacher whose, whose name was Stephen, stood up and preached a message in Acts 7. 
And the Jewish leaders rejected Stephen's message at that time and they stoned him to death. And there was an overseer to that crucifixion, or that, excuse me, that stoning, whose name was Saul. And Saul was the overseer to make sure that Stephen died in that moment because he was proclaiming the name Jesus as the true king, the true Messiah. It's that same Saul of Tarsus that ultimately met Jesus on the road to Damascus while he was en route to go arrest, persecute, and even kill Christians who were living there. But Saul met Jesus on that route. He was blinded. Ultimately, he came to faith in Christ and he knew that Jesus was the Messiah. He knew he was the true king. He rose up from that place and became a preacher and, and was able to go into synagogues of the Jewish people because that was his heritage. That's what he knew. It's how he was trained well. But God gave him a special mission in that he would be the preacher to the Gentiles. And that means like people like us that don't have a Jewish background. And he would go first into a city often and he would preach the word to the Jewish people, also to the Gentile people. And the formation of the church started to shape where it was Jew and Gentile together in the same place, worshiping the same God, believing in the same Messiah, the same Christ, incomprehensible. It was one of the clearest, one of the clearest signs here of Christianity was the sheer fact that Jew and Gentile could be in the same place at the same time, worshiping the same God, that was impossible. Because previous to this time, the Jews had no dealings with a Gentile. If they were ever even out in the marketplace, after being in the marketplace, they would go through a ceremonial washing of their whole body to reveal that we have been amongst dirty dog people all day long and we need to be cleaned up because we're messy now. And it was so separate from one another. There was impossible to imagine the Jew and the Gentile in the same place. But that's the formation of the church. It was the obvious scene that Christ supernaturally transforms lives. And so you enter into a new time. It's this church time, this letters to the churches where Paul begins as he's church planting. He then writes letters back to churches, some that he established and some that he did not, that he was familiar with. And he was writing then as an authority, as an apostolic authority to them for what purpose? He was teaching them the doctrine of the faith. Truly, who is the Christ and how do we walk in him? But he was also teaching very practical things on, on what does it look to be a Christ follower and how does a Jew and a Gentile relate to each other and show respect and honor for each other even though we come from such diverse backgrounds. And so the, the letters to the churches, all of those, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, all of those letters to churches teaching us the manner of being a Christ follower. But in our New Testament, there's also specific letters written to people. The letters that are written to a couple of pastors, Timothy and Titus. Very instructional for how to conduct as a leader and as a manner in ministry and how to, how to lead in a church. And what's the order of the church? What are the priorities of the church? But there was also a letter written to a man named Philemon who was just a good friend of Paul. Giving him instruction because this man owned a slave. And this slave had stolen from him and ran away. And Paul was instructing him in the book of Philemon. To this man has become a Christ follower and you receive him back as a brother. It's a very powerful, very short but powerful book. But it gives you a glimpse into the heart of God to touch into every detail of every person's life. That though I'm talking right now in terms of a huge grander picture, I want you to capture this morning the fact that 
you fit into this picture as a Christ follower, as a part of a church. We're in this church age and God cares intimately about every single detail of your life and yet has orchestrated all these events from the foundation of the world and we're going to see all the way through to the finish here in just a moment. How does that even shape? But I don't want you to miss the fact of what is it that God's doing with you even now. After these letters to these individuals, there's also, through the remainder of your New Testament, there's letters to Hebrew Christians. The Hebrew people at this time in history were scattered about because of persecution. So the letters written to them were affirming to them that truly Jesus is the Christ. And everything that you have learned from all of that Old Testament information and the laws and the feast and all the traditions, those things were leading you to Christ. It's not that all that was a sham and a waste and worthless. No, ultimately it, it led you to know who the true Messiah is and to walk in his way. And so they were affirmed in this and through the book of Hebrews. And James speaks to people very much persecuted. And what does it look like to be a, a faithful follower under great persecution? Peter does the same, First and Second Peter. John speaks of the true love in First, Second, and Third John, the devoted love that we have as a Christ follower and also Jude. Jude writes a, a very specific regarding the apostasy of the day where there were false teachers just plugging into the church like crazy, trying to lead people astray to believe things that were a lie. But then we come up on a new road sign. It's the road sign of things that many of which haven't happened yet. It's the road sign of the revelation. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ given through John the Beloved. In fact, in Revelation chapter 1, I invite you to turn in your Bibles today to Revelation 1. It's like, well, that was the introduction. We're done with that now. Let's move on. Revelation chapter 1. John the Beloved writes what he sees. It's what he is instructed to do. In Revelation chapter 1 and verse 10, in fact, he, he says this, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what you see, write in a book, and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. So John takes the things that he sees, he's in the spirit, so he's writing things that he sees. That's why through the book of Revelation you often will see him using the words like like and as because he's liking it to things that he knows but it's try, he's trying to look at this going, what in the world is that? And so he's even writing about things that are obviously to come so you can imagine in first century language and understanding of what he is looking at and things that would be even happening in real time to us now. Can you imagine trying to do that? Can you imagine even 50 years ago when we used to all be like, woo, you know, someday it's going to be so cool. We have like these computers like on our wrist and everybody's like, nah, that's stupid. And well, now it's not so stupid. You know, here we are. And so there's, it's all these incomprehensible things. Well, try fast forwarding about a 2000 year gap and being in all this world. And so he writes things in a lot of like and as. But oftentimes people like to grab hold of the book of Revelation and completely change the manner of how we read it from that which has been all the way through the Bible. We may see it as a historical and reading it in its literary context in the way that it's written. And all of a sudden we get to Revelation. Woo, we need to spiritualize the whole thing. 
When no, actually, Jesus told John, just write what you see. And you can watch this whole thing play out so we can understand. If you look at verse 19, he affirms this again. He said in chapter 1, verse 19, Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. The book of Revelation is actually, I think it breaks apart with specific road signs of things to come. In the first three chapters of the book, really chapters two and three, are letters to seven churches that are in Asia. Those are real churches, real letters that went to them. I believe they also represent church time frames as well that ultimately leads to the place of a major road sign. Because after chapter 3, the word church does not appear again until you get to the very end of the book. Because something specific happens. When you get to the end of chapter 3 and go on now to chapter 4, I want you to notice something that happens in chapter 4 that's unique. In chapter 4, verse 1, it says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open. One of the things you can observe in the book of Revelation is kind of some bookends. Pay attention to when heaven opens the door. In Revelation chapter 4, heaven opens and somebody goes up. We'll see you later in Revelation 19, heaven opens and somebody comes down. It's pretty easy to then kind of start putting some, some uh, road signs along the way. The scripture teaches in, in more than just even in this one place where we see somebody of the church going up of the rapture of the church, the calling out of the church. And I realize there's some folks that don't believe in this or believe in different times of when this might take place. But here's what takes place we can see in the scripture is there's all this discussion about the church and then the church is no longer being discussed until the end of the book. There's comfort that comes with understanding the calling away of the church because the church is not designed to face the wrath of God. But what's going to follow after is certainly the wrath of God. In fact, if we observe a couple of places, if you hold your spot in Revelation and go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, is one of the places where we are encouraged in the scriptures. It's to bring comfort. The question in this time frame was, hey, my, my relative is a, was a Christ follower, they died. Will they get to experience the resurrection too? Like, will their body get resurrected or is this it? We put them in the grave and we're done. There's a big major concern. So Paul addressed this concern in 1 Thessalonians 4. So just watch what it says in verse 13. He says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from the heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord." These are comforting words. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Here's the comfort. That those who have already passed away and are already, their bodies are in the grave, that at this moment, at this calling out of the church and the calling out of, the, of these people, those who have already passed will resurrect out and they, we receive the glorified body 
the eternal body. Your earth suit obviously wore out and by now it's decayed and completely gone. But you get a glorified body that's suited for heaven. It's the incorruptible. It's the immortal that is also spoken about. It's a mystery that Paul then reveals. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is this revelation of a mystery. If you notice in this one we just read though, there was this gathering together in the clouds. It also mentions that Jesus descends in the clouds. It doesn't say that he descended all the way to the earth. It's different than when he comes back in the second coming where he descends to the earth. And we'll see that in just a few moments. He descends to the clouds. There's a gathering together and something special takes place. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 50 says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Now, what's a mystery? A mystery is a truth that's been there all along, but revealed now. Okay? It hasn't been revealed as clear, but now we're going to reveal it clearly. Here's the mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass that saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? Well, there isn't one. No victory in that. Because why? Because Jesus is the grave robber, right? He's the one who conquered Death by resurrecting, but now the promise in 1 Corinthians 15 is also that our physical bodies, just like his, will also resurrect. This takes place, we see this happening in Revelation 4, we see it now concluded, Paul writes of this, revealing a mystery which is critical, but known as the rapture of the church, where God calls out the believers in Christ at this time, and we won't be here. Why? Because the, the events that are about to unfold have a very defined purpose that have actually been illustrated all the way through the Old Testament repeatedly. This story gets repeated again and again. If you just watch the order of things that take place in Revelation, it's kind of cool because you watch, whoop, the church is called out, followed by a seven-year tribulation time frame. That's the next major road sign, is the big tribulation in the book of Revelation, this covers re chapters 6 through 18. And what you see in this time is these judgments being, coming out from, from the Lord. There's the seals that are now opened. And these seals, that once they're opened, are different judgments that pour out. And we'll go through the details of them. The trumpets sound. And when the trumpet sounds, here comes another layer of judgment. Then these bowls or these vials are, are now opened and poured out. To where another judgment is coming. It's in this time frame. There's a seven year time frame. The first three and a half years of this time. Are known as a time of peace with Israel. This is one of the phenomenal things to take place. Is a peace accord with Israel. With the nations that surround them. The scripture speaks into this. Clear back from Daniel the prophet. Talks about this time. Where the antichrist. There will be a. with The, 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 the man who opposes. The antichrist. The one who opposes Jesus will somehow be able to make a peace accord 
that will get Israel at peace for a season of time with the nations that surround them. Right now, that sounds incomprehensible, doesn't it? It's been tried and tried and tried and tried, and it always comes up short. But there will come a day. This will need to happen. This will happen because the temple needs to be rebuilt. The materials to rebuild it are already acquired. Everything is in a good-to-go position. If you find out anything about what's going on in Israel today, and um, there's a school of the priest. They have literally thousands of people in the school of the priest prepared to serve in the temple that will ultimately be reconstructed. The sacrifice of even the red heifer that is to be made, those red heifers, that breed of, of livestock and all that, that's all in order. It's all set and ready to go. There's a, there's a time waiting. There's an anticipation. It's been waited and waited and waited and waited. But there isn't a ready spot for this to take place even now. But there needs to be a temple built. And the reason why Jesus spoke into this as well. Because there's a, when the temple is constructed, halfway through this seven-year time frame, at the three-and-a-half-year mark, the Antichrist will go into the temple of God and declare himself to be God. Jesus called this the abomination of desolation that Daniel wrote about. In fact, you can see this illustrated very distinctly. Paul writes about it too in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'll just read it to you quickly. Here we go. Chapter 2, verse 3. He says, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Jesus described this as the abomination of desolation and so did Daniel the prophet clear back in the days of old. When this takes place, Jesus now describes in Matthew 24 that the Hebrew people, those who live in Judea, you better run because the peace accord's over. And now all of a sudden the Antichrist will be in a pursuit and after the Hebrew people specifically and they will run to the rocks and God's going to provide them protection there. A place called Petra. He's going to provide them protection and feed them supernaturally. And you think about some of your Old Testament stories where there might be an antichrist figure who's opposing all that is God, chasing after someone who is a God follower and they somehow are able to hide in the wilderness and God keeps feeding them in the wilderness and sustaining them. It's a foreshadowing of something that was to come. And this takes place then for, for this last three and a half years. It is actually called the time of Jacob's trouble. Jacob, Israel. It's the time of Jacob's trouble. Specific, a great tribulation on this earth. An incredible time where the greatest earthquakes that the earth has ever seen. And cataclysmic events that take place with hailstorms and fire and all kinds of things. Take place during this time. It's even described that the that people would go into the caves and of the rocks and plead that the rocks would fall upon them. They just want it to be over because it's so intense. It is then also in this time that anyone who is a Christ follower and who puts their faith in Christ takes a specific mark and they are physically marked with the mark of God. Those who follow the Antichrist also take a mark. We've, many times we hear this, you see it in the movies all the time, the 666 thing engraved in the forehead or in the back of the hand. Revelation chapter 13 describes that. Those who bear the mark of the Antichrist are his followers. And it's a tough time because if you bear the mark of God, 
your capacity to buy, sell, and trade, and even do basic things, impossible. In fact, those who bear the mark of God, most of which are slain, and you see many of those who lose their life and often even their head is removed, and you see them later in Revelation at the throne of God, worshiping God, as those who were rescued through and saved during the time of the great tribulation. God has not appointed the church unto wrath. He saved us from that. So you get your road signs set in order. There's a rapture, calling away of the bride of Christ. It's beautiful. This tribulation time frame. But it's not over. There's seven years of this time frame that take place in preparation for the return of the king. In Revelation chapter 19, in verse 11. Now I saw heaven opened. Aha, another road sign. Earlier heaven opened and somebody went up. Now heaven opens and somebody comes down. I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. And his eyes were like a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no one knew except himself. And he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. And the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. And he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the return of the king. He comes all the way down. Those are with him, ride on white horses with him. There's this huge battle that's engaged. The opposition of God is conquered. But it's preparation in this moment for what's called the day of the Lord. It's kind of unique how it's called out. It's called the day of the Lord that lasts a thousand years. Now catch that. It's the day of the Lord that lasts for a thousand years. Now, why does that matter? You know, Peter, in same context of speaking of the return of the king, said this, that a day with the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. And then he goes into speaking of the fact that there's coming a day when the heavens will be vanished away, vaporized, heaven and earth. Be a new heaven, a new earth coming. But he makes this statement that a day with the Lord is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. Well, you just think through the, the chronicle of human history. This unfolding drama of redemption that we have just walked through from Genesis to now. There has been 6,000 years of human history on this planet from Adam to now. Six days. The anticipated seventh day, the day of rest, the Sabbath year, or the Sabbath day that lasts how long? A thousand years. There's so much consistency in the Bible in the way God does things. So what are we anticipating? The thousand year millennial reign of Christ in Revelation chapter 20, 
we begin to see how this comes down. In verse 2, it says, He laid hold on the dragon. This angel came down with a key from the bottomless pit, and he grabbed hold of this dragon, Satan the devil. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Satan is out of business for 1,000 years while Jesus reigns on this planet. Now, this may seem odd, but if you skip forward to verse 7, it says, Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan is released from prison. Oh, for crying out loud. Come on, why? And will go out to deceive the nations, which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, could gather them together for a battle whose number is as the sand of the sea. Hard to comprehend that after having the king on the throne for 1,000 years and Satan is bound in his power and his force and all that he has been is out of business for a 1,000 years, yet when he is loosed for even a short season, that he will go out to deceive the nations, but his power of deception is so powerful and strong that even at that time, people will choose to follow him even then. They will gather together in a battle opposing God. They will lose. You'll see this. They'll go out, to, and, and here we go. And they, verse 9, they went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Done. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and they will torment day and night forever and ever and the devil is now out of business forever for eternity. But here's what's cool about this. Christ reigns for a thousand years at the end of this time is when you see the new heaven and the new earth. There's this huge judgment that takes place for the unbeliever and all of those throughout history who have rejected God, rejected Jesus Christ, tried to work their way to heaven, establish their own religions, do whatever it is they're going to do, somehow thinking that I can do enough to please God, or I don't care about God, and I don't want to hear anything more about this Jesus character. I'm done with all that. Well, there comes a day where all are brought up in front of the king at the great white throne judgment, and the books are opened. And if you look at the last phrase in Revelation chapter 20, Verse 14 and 15 says, Then death and hell were cast into the lake and fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. It's the final judgment for the unbeliever. But then we get a new road sign. Is that it? Are we done? Chapter 21. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth have passed away and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw... Write what you saw, John. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And if you watch what all takes place, this is cool stuff. In verse 4, it says, And God wipes away every tear from their eyes. There's no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There's no more pain. Why? Because all former things have passed away. That's why. There's a new heaven and a new earth that ushers you right into the eternal glory. This is the way it will be. Satan's out of business. Death and hell, out of business. All of the destruction and all the disease and all the calamity and all the sorrows and all the anxiety and depression and struggles and all the issues of life that torment us day and, day and night, gone. In Revelation chapter 22, and he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and the Lamb. And in the middle of that street on either side was a river 
of the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, and each tree yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, where there's no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants will serve him. And God dwells with man, which is what he wanted all along. Here's your whole story, your whole Bible. From Genesis all the way to the finish, to eternity. And where do you fit right now? Part of the church. We have this unique calling on our lives right now in this place. To do what? To be people who are Christ followers, proclaiming the message of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that people from every kindred, nation, tribe, and tongue would know the name Jesus and have a valid opportunity to say yes to Jesus, to be a part of the church, to be a part of, as a body of followers of Christ, the, the bride, and be a part of our family. And that's God's mission. It's God's purpose for us in this time. But we should not be ignorant or lacking information about those things which are to come because the things which are to come, number one, they bring comfort. Knowing these things, it's comforting. Knowing these things that we've learned even today of the things to come, it brings conviction about, well, how am I to live in this present day knowing that all these things are about to come to pass? It also brings out a calling in our lives. And maybe God is calling unto you today to be saved because that, is his, that has been his object of his heart the whole time is that the world would know Jesus Christ and worship the Lord Jesus Christ, the one true king. And maybe this is the day where God is calling into your heart and revealing and saying, wow, I need today Jesus Christ, the Lord. I know today, I want to know I'm forgiven and I want to know my name is written in that book of life. I want to know that when Jesus comes, I'm gathered together with him to meet him in the air. That's what I want. I want Jesus to be my king. And maybe there's a calling that's taking place. I don't know what God's doing in all of your lives today. That's impossible. I can tell you this. The first time when I was able to sit and listen to someone and just share with me the story of the Bible, it completely changed my life. I was already a Christ follower. But it changed the course of my life. And I'll tell you why. Because the Bible was no longer just this old history book that I didn't understand all the words and the sacrifices and all the people and the nations. And it's like, who cares? It's already happened. Who cares? No, it became a book that was alive. That I realized that the same God who is back over here in Genesis is the same God in Revelation. It's the same God that's at work in my life right now. And God wants my feet standing firm on a foundation. And God is using and working in my life to transform me into the image of Christ. But he's also working through my life to accomplish his will and his purpose. So all the things that are difficult and all the calamities that happen daily, God allows those things in my life to mold my faith and transform my life, to build me stronger daily in the word. And that, that I would trust his words and stand firm on his foundation. And God doesn't want me to be ignorant. To be ignorant of those things which are to come. If you watch in the New Testament, people that are proclaimers of the gospel are often also proclaiming that there is a judgment to come. That's the good news. The good news is God has saved you from this judgment to come. 
And so today, my, if you only knew, my, the, my heart for you today is that we would all just grab hold of the magnitude of this incredible drama of redemption and realize God has been writing this story the whole time, revealing it, that we can know it and you can even see where you fit in it and be confident in the things that are yet to come and let it be comfort to your soul. He's a sovereign God and knows exactly what he's doing, clear down to the details of everything happening in your life. Let's just bow our heads for a moment and contemplate that reality.